Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Jeff Kolk. Jeff is a mechanical engineer and currently program manager at Dynamic Metrology Services, where they offer high-performance measurement solutions such as 3D scanning, CMM measurements, vision inspection, and more for companies in the automotive, furniture, medical, and aerospace industries. Jeff, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Good to see you, Aaron. Absolutely. So Jeff and I have worked together in the past, and we'll get into that a little bit. Um, I wanted to start off, Jeff, by asking you, what was it about being an engineer that was attractive to you, you know, back when you were deciding what you wanted to do for your career? Good question. Uh, well, out of school, it, it, it seemed to fit most with uh, classes we did well in and other things. Uh, you know, it seemed to be a natural flow. My dad was an engineer, and uh, so I ended up down the engineering path in college and and it's been going that if not in an engineer role like now I, I, I was through most of my career in, in the automotive interiors okay so your dad was an engineer you saw him yeah. I don't know probably heard stories about work and thought ah oh, that that sounds interesting I, I should check that out yeah for sure. Any uh, any experiences you had, like growing up in your formative years, that uh, that helped you understand? Oh, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. Or was it was it more just kind of general? You heard your dad talking. You maybe I don't know. Read things. No, it was it was probably a, a natural fit. Uh, I, I've always gravitated to mechanical things and hands on. You know, and it's kind of funny in today's high tech world. My my background and probably what led me into it was much more of a hands-on thing. It's, it's, you know, I grew up working on cars and small projects, side projects, you know, any, anything in that direction. I don't know if you've ever seen the, have you ever seen the Dilbert uh, engineer cartoon when, when he goes to the doctor's office, it's really a funny cartoon and it's called the knack. If you ever want to look that up, that's a really funny one about a kid that's <laughs> destined to become an engineer. So, um, no, it, it really, it, it was a shoehorn fit for my, you know, my natural abilities and, and what I gravitate to towards. Is, is so. that the one I've heard an audio clip? I don't, I don't know if it's the same one, but, um, it's like, I don't know, a doctor or something talking to a mother and he's like, yes, your son has, maybe that's the knack. Has, maybe that's what he says. The knack. And then the mother's like, Oh no, ah, <laughs> oh, no freaking out. Mother's well runs away screaming that his son's uh, going to be an engineer. But anyway, a lot of good engineer humor. So. Yeah. All right. So right out of college, you worked at a place called Prince Corporation. Yes. And uh, if I if I understand correctly, they manufacture um, uh, like in, industrial. Uh, I don't know. Feed supplies is the right word, but but uh, nope. like no, nope, that's a different company uh, in Holland, Michigan. Here, Prince was a automotive interior supplier. Oh, different no, Prince. Uh, yeah, there's a few okay. different princes, and it's easy. It, it comes up quite often that it, they get crossed a little bit. Not tennis rackets, uh, but it was, a, it was a really standout automotive interior supplier. Real dynamic and and positive organization, and. Uh, really lucky to be there for a number of years. Tell me uh, a little since, bit more about that. What, what was, uh, what was positive about it? Prince had a foundation of, uh, building a great culture, a very trusting environment where, uh, you know, the employees and, and the company like trusted each other and, and were given a just tremendous work environment. And, uh, we were, we were very, very successful in the automotive interiors arena. And, uh, 
unfortunately, uh, the founder passed away sometime into it for me and the, the company was sold, uh, but still went on. And I actually, we currently do, it's been through two different owners now, but, and we, we do a lot of work with a lot of the same people I knew when I was there. So it was a, here in Holland, Michigan, it was a very, just a standout company, just, just phenomenally successful and, and a very positive place to work, very positive work environment. Uh, you know, one of my former managers was cornered in what made you guys so different. And as you said, it, he said, uh, well, you just got to know at a prince, it, is, it was more important to work well with people than to be the best at your job. So, and not that we didn't have a lot of, you know, super talented people, but it was very strong uh, teamwork environment. Was Interesting. How did they foster that kind of environment? Because that sounds very attractive, right? It's more important to work well with others than it is to be the, I don't know, successful at your job, but they're both important, of course. But what, what kind of things did they do to foster that environment? There was a, there was a number of things. Um, it was, it was pushed really hard in, in your review plan and your uh, uh, different interactions as you grew in the company and it was, you know, any kind of attitude problems or any kind of not my job kind of attitudes built in were addressed right away. Right Most away. Of it was done through the positive. And, uh, you know, it just, it was, it's, it's hard to explain on just a short podcast here. It's a very long explanation. It's a really awesome place to be. And I, I really probably changed. I sure I changed and, and much different today than I would have been if I had worked in any other environment. It was really a positive experience for me. Well, we might have to do a whole other podcast just on that topic alone. That sounds yeah, really interesting. we could do that. And it, it is. It's powerful, powerful stuff. And it's really fascinating. Uh, here, I've been, I've been out of that corporation, even in its subsequent owners, for um, God, 15 years or so now. And yet, everywhere I go, um, I can see... Well, I working here at Dynamic, we interface with, you know, hundreds of companies in the area. And you can see numerous people who have moved on to other companies in the area and brought a lot of that Prince environment and culture with them and, and tried to foster it in new locations. It's really, it's an amazing story. I, you're catching me off guard here, but with a big smile because you're bringing back good memories. So I didn't think very much about this thing. <laughs> So. Okay. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. In all honesty, I'd love to maybe do a follow up if it's if it's too much to talk about right now. That sounds yeah. like really valuable yeah. information for people to hear. Okay. And if if uh, any tidbits of information kind of come to you, boil up from your subconscious while we're talking, feel free to sure. to share them. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So you uh, you then worked as a project engineer and a program manager at a company called Johnson Controls, uh, which apparently is a really big company. I was looking at their website. Really big. And like, yeah, over 100,000 employees worldwide, something like that. And just uh, the, the quick uh, connection there is Johnson Controls was the company who was recruited to purchase prints when, oh, when okay. their founder passed away. And that, that was okay. pre-staged. They had that also at a time. So that was an extension. Of, of that alignment. So also automotive interiors. Yes. Ah, I see. Uh, so Johnson controls was automotive interiors. Yeah. The division we were in was automotive interiors. Yes. Got it. Well, my research is just completely off today because the Johnson okay. controls I found, I thought was uh, they did like smart buildings 
is, is what that is the foundation of Johnson Controls, and that's what they've been through and through from the beginning of time. And okay. uh, they branched into automotive a, a few decades ago. I think they pretty well backed out at this time of the automotive arena or a good portion of it. So that, that was a Johnson Controls was a always shifting and adjusting to markets as, as necessary. So. Okay. Uh, so on, on LinkedIn, I saw that you've been the owner of Colk uh, uh, LLC for sure. 31 years now, a long time. Tell me, is, is that something that you're uh, kind of actively working on or uh, just, I don't know, something on the side that doesn't get too much attention these days? I, I don't promote it. I, I get more work than I want. And for, for a while there between Johnson Controls and Dynamic, I did that full time. And that's, I've had some motor auto racing background and and I do some projects on um, really any car, but primarily race cars. Okay, so, tell me about your your racing background. What uh, yeah. what did you race? I was uh, very fortunate to be able to race a highly modified Porsche 911 in, in a, wow. a national road racing series. So I was lucky to do that for a while. That was real, real amazing experience. Yeah, the National Road Racing. Uh, what did you call it? The well, it was uh, Porsche Club has a. It, as just a Mark Car Club has an amazingly successful and large road racing uh, program that I was involved in for a number of years. I still flirt around the outskirts and help prepare some cars for it and, and do some help with the club. But for it was probably eight or 10 years ago, I was still really active in that. Okay. I, I know almost nothing about the racing world can you tell me a little bit about what uh, what you were doing? Is it, I mean, is it like uh, just sprints that you were doing or, or you know, long, long, I, I know some of these, like the Indy 500 or whatever, they go for, what, four or five hours or something? It's, it's a long Our race. Our races would last about a half hour. Half an hour. Half hour. Okay. okay. We have some Enduros, but that, that was an hour and a half. Nothing like you see in professional motorsports. This is purely amateur motorsports. Okay. How did you get into that? Ah, just, uh, it just kind of overtook me. I've always loved cars and one thing led to the next. I, I, you know, grew up always wanting a car, then a little better car, a little better car. And, and, uh, it just progressed, you know, from one step to the next, uh, you know, real high-end sports car to taking that to local autocrosses, to some lapping days, to some time trials. And, and that grew into the wheel to wheel racing. And the you mentioned it was a highly modified Porsche. Were these modifications done by you, or was there a, another yeah, team I, behind it? No, this was my own. My, I owned the car, built the car, designed the car, developed the car, drove the car. That sounds and, incredible. Uh, yeah. How long did it? Uh, it was probably uh, a continuing process. But how long did you spend building this car? It's a continuing process. It was a car I owned for a long time, and as time went on, it. it I developed it farther and farther into higher and higher classes, the same vehicle, but in in higher spec classes as time went on. Okay. And for Colk LLC, what uh, what kind of work were you doing? I mean, back when it was full time. Most anything except paint. I have uh, I'm at a shop in a building with a, or a group of guys up there that has a has multi-employee operation. Mine was just me. And anytime we need paint, I'd just hand it to them, but I'd do anything from an engine build or an oil change or 
my specialty was chassis setup, uh, where you're getting the alignment and weight balance and some of the suspension critical details adjusted very accurately. Okay. Um, any any particularly noteworthy projects that uh, you can share with us from those days? Oh, gosh, it's it's been so long ago. There, I've had a few really nice, well, along with a car built for myself, uh, I've had a, a few full builds for people that that turned out really nice. Yeah, so. Cool. But yeah, it's well, been called LC. I never really advertised for it. I, I, It's a business I've literally never had a business card. <laughs> okay that that does not surprise me for some reason uh yeah. after looking through your linkedin profile it's sparse let's just say yeah that's yeah <laughs> i like to make that like, that's that's a good point i've probably taken that style into what i do today and maybe not not ideal but uh a, a dynamic i i like to connect with a customer um work with my team, work with your team and make the performance on the project be the selling point for, for future projects, for reference to other, com- you know, colleagues that, you know, a given customer you may have. And uh, I've, I've known that, that it's not my nature to broadcast and advertise and whatnot. So, and then it's probably not that ideal, but, you know, we, we approach some of the push for Work development at Dynamic and other in other ways, primarily by strong performance of our team. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Your your style a little bit. Uh, you've been you know working as an engineer or in the industry for a long time now. What are, what are some of the uh, the best practices that you've picked up during your career? Um, maybe some habits that you practice that that help you be uh, productive and effective at work or even just in life in general? Well, I honestly, it's kind of fun that you brought out the Prince connection because I learned so much back then and, and, uh, it developed, a you know, it was something you learned out of college, you're all green and whatnot. You so that this is all new to you, but it seems so simple now looking back, it was just developing a high integrity operation, you know, uh, here's something that happens at dynamic. You know, we, we push an environment where you know, you're going to measure parts. You have to be as accurate as you can be. And as much as we try, occasionally you miss one, you know, or you sure. misinterpret a dimension or whatnot. And yeah. We've tried to create a culture here that if you call with a problem, there's something went wrong. Hey, let's dig into this. What do you got there? And, and if it's something that we didn't get right, you know, we, we don't hide it, don't defend it, don't, you know, go out of the way. That's that's something that I find very effective in, in the daily working environment. And then uh, on the culture side, you know, that I just find I've had so much experience from my background. Uh, first, for, with Prince, that you just work well with people, be positive, don't, non-confrontational, and it, and it just... And that's not through and through out there, as I'm sure you know. There's uh, <laughs> a lot of people uh, keep a whole different profile in the whether sure. it's work or whatnot. Um, I'm sure as a business owner, you have learned the same thing. You, you you can't go charging at people and beating them up and whatnot. And, and it, it might work in the short term, but in the long run, you know, the people don't come back. 
For sure. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to, to practice that here and there. Um, I have a mentor who likes to say, when under attack, fall back. And okay. what he means by that is, you know, if, if someone is, is being hostile or aggressive or whatever, if, if you're hostile or aggressive back to that person, it is not going to solve the problem. It's just going to uh, make the situation even more heated, even more difficult to, to get For something sure. productive done. Yeah. So he likes to say, when under attack, fall back. And I found that to be really excellent advice. That is a great comment. And pull back and, and revisit it. And, you know, it, but you got to address it afterwards. You can't just sure. let that sit and lie. If there's something there. And you got to go back and, and uh, dig into it and not let it just flou- you know, flounder down there and, and cause long-term yeah. problems. So, Yeah. And, and I think that um, fall back doesn't necessarily mean become complacent and let people walk all over you. It just means, you know, don't get in their face. Don't, don't retaliate. Don't yell at them. Uh, take a step back, take a deep breath and, uh, 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 how can how can I help you solve this problem? You know, as opposed to in a well, business or technical environment. Is. Yeah, I mean it, that is so true. I mean you you can get your gander up and get your macho side out and and fight and confront and whatnot, but it 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 it, exa- it highlights the situation and accentuates it instead of. Yeah, I like that, Paul. That's a really good one. I enjoy it. I'll remember. There you go. Print it out and hang it up somewhere. (laughs) Well, this is uh, maybe a good place to take a quick break and uh, share that the Being an Engineer podcast is powered by Pipeline Design and Engineering, where we work with predominantly medical device engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. And you can find us at testfixturedesign.com. We're speaking today with Jeff Kolk, who is the program manager at Dynamic Metrology Services. So let's let's start talking a little bit about Dynamic. How did you transition into your current role at Dynamic? It's uh, you know not a totally it's really not at all a by design process. I was uh, in my shop one morning, kind of coming to life with a cup of coffee and reading some news online, and the and the then general manager of, of dynamic here uh, burst into my shop hair on fire and they were i barely knew about dynamic but i, I knew this gentleman really well and they needed some help and uh short term they were hot 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 behind on a project and i came over here and and hopped on our previous vision machine and I sat and ran parts for a month or so, and uh, the company we were doing that for, we kind of the connection started to get made, and and uh, developed program management role specifically for this very large group of uh, insert molded glass filled nylon components. It's some really highly complex parts that um, we worked through the launch phase to to support them. So it just something that just grew, you know, I just kind of fell on my lap. You know, I was kind of thinking I probably wanted to get back more in the, I wouldn't say corporate world, but uh, non, non motorsports world. Uh, and uh, it just happened and days have gone by and it just has grown farther and farther as time went on uh, to 
you've been there now for what 10 11 12 years something like that I think 12 years i think is the right years. number right, right now okay yeah. during that 12 year time period can you think of a project that either you had like a, a a huge success on a project or maybe it was a huge fail on a project and and what you learned from that and maybe what you know what we we can all learn collectively from that experience that's a good question um we have thousands of projects have come and gone through here the from the time probably numerous projects on our ato scanning where if you're not familiar with the 3d scanning world it use it's a camera based system that creates a digital copy of that part, which you can then overlay to CAD, variety of things you can do with it. We've had so many, you know, really positive hits with that, where um, you you can sit with that data, and the, the common tool we use in the, in the scanning world is the overlay to CAD, and it gives you that color field view of the part. It's very intuitive. I mean, if you've seen it, you know what it's doing. Um, and you can see how the part varies from CAD or from a previous part or whatever. And we just had some really positive successes with that. And once once we get going with companies, it's always very. It's also very. We've kept a try to keep a profile here of instead of trying to get the scan out as quick and fast as cheap as possible, we always go the other direction. If in doubt, we tweak the processes to be a little higher resolution. Even if we're not certain it's fully needed on a given project, Aaron, I think you've, you've we've had that together, haven't we? We uh, have, we have, and, absolutely. Uh, I think our our culture and style shows through. Is that we always if do they need to really get down in that in that little pocket in there? Well, I'm not sure. Let's get it. You know, um, so we we try to be as thorough and as high accuracy as we can in that, and that's always received well. And we've been able. It's very. I would call it a nice hit that we can, it's a nicer place to live than how much can we get away with? You know, how much, what, what's the minimum they need to keep the prices <laughs> that we get the people in the door. And then um, it's, so a lot of, a lot of good successes there where we've really seen some uncovering some hidden problems with the, with the ATOS data is, is the scan data is so strong that you can really start to see some things that you wouldn't, through, you know, if you're pouring through 30, 40 pages of Excel data with dimensions in the format of Excel data. Yeah, I can speak yeah. to that. You, you mentioned um, the, the overlay and we've, we've been able to utilize that from Dynamic a lot where you have a, a part and you want to know, uh, is the geometry of this part either equivalent to the geometry of another part or does it match the CAD data? Mm -hmm. And you can either scan part A and part B and overlay them, like you said, and it produces this wonderful color map. It's really easy to see where the geometric deviations occur, if they occur. Or you can overlay it on uh, the, the nominal geometry of the CAD model and, again, see that color map. So that's been really helpful for us. Um, and, and then you you talked a little bit about the, I guess, the level of detail in your scans. And, and we've also seen that. We've worked with a few different scanning vendors, uh, maybe a little background. So at Pipeline, we do reverse engineering here in-house. We have our own uh, 3D scanner. Um, and the reverse engineering process, uh, I'll just I'll go on a quick side tangent for those that aren't familiar with this process. But there, there are really two main efforts 
One is scanning the object to get the, the point cloud, the raw data. And the second is actually reverse engineering the object within a special CAD application. We use something called DesignX uh, using that, that raw scan data. And uh, for larger projects, especially where there are, you know, maybe 30 or 40 components that need to be scanned, uh, we have often opted to send that out to Dynamic to do the scanning. Uh, and then our team internally does all the, the CAD modeling and reverse engineering. And, and one thing that we have consistently noted, um, and we have worked with several different scanning vendors in the past, is, is that uh, some of the scans we've received from other vendors, they're okay, but they're kind of patchy. They're, they're missing surfaces here and there, especially when you get down into some crevices or pockets maybe. And we always just thought, well, that's just a, a limitation of the, the scattered light scanning technology. And then we started work with Dynamic and we realized uh, maybe not because the scans we get from your team are, are so detailed and uh, complete and thorough. They're just really beautiful scans. So that's, that's something we've really appreciated um, working with your team. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, the equipment that you use there uh, that you mentioned the ATOS uh, scanner. Uh, what What is the technology that that uses and, and how have you been able to use it so effectively to get such clean uh, uh, raw data scan sets? Well, in the in the scanning world, there's there's primary, primarily two avenues short of the higher end CT scanning, which sounds like we'll get into a little later in our, in our podcast. Um, and there's cameras and lasers and the lasers are typically the uh, spread laser technology mounted on a multi-link arm. No, you know, common manufacturers are Ferro and Romer arms. Um, and then the, the camera based arena is primarily there's some hybrids and offshoots of this that don't exactly fall into this description, but primarily known as structured light scanning. Uh, a number of years ago, a common terminology for that was white light scanning. And then that terminology uh, has changed to blue light. Structured light is really the more industry generic correct term. Uh, blue light is a little bit slang. And uh, so it uses, well, the light is a light source. It, it's a projector bulb. Um, you know, you go to these high-tech demonstrations and, we, we like to reduce it to real simple terminology and, and you know, they'll, they'll fluff it all up, but, and fair enough, but it, it's a projector ball and it shoots through a screen. And this is where things start getting tight tech. And I think early versions that might even have been a mylar screen where it projects a pattern of light down on the part. And today's systems, the projector shoots through a, you know, a computer system controlled LCD screen. So that then creates an image. Um, it, so it looks like lines being laid down. It's, the way it was explained to me is a rows of little tiny triangles. And, the, and then that is read with a camera or two cameras. Um, so there's a structured light scanning means there's a controlled pattern, structured pattern that's laid down on the part. And then the cameras read what it sees. And in the case of our ATOS equipment, it uses a two camera system. and and triangulation against that um, in order to read all those patterns of light on the part and then calculate tons of points. Um, it's not exactly correct, but you know the, the, the systems have typically have four, six, 
8, 16, 12 megapixel cameras in them. And theoretically, it's 12 million. Let's say it's an 8 megapixel camera, 8, 8 million points. Well, with how it reads, it's not exactly that. But it's in that range. It's in that order of magnitude. So if you take an image of, and if we were to take an image of a basketball, you take an image on, on one side of it, prep the part such that the images can read and join from one to the next. So you start building images around the ball with, with camera shots. And each time you take an image, it makes, you know, a few million points. And that's what they'll do. Now, short of the CT, which we'll talk to, which is slightly different, the, the lasers, the cameras, the uh, trackers, the all the slightly different systems, they all do the same thing. They make points, they make lots of points really fast. And uh, then, to my knowledge, they all do a second processing step in order to make the data useful for the typical software packages uh, that are out there. And that is to put a little tying tiny triangular face element between each three-point pattern. So there's millions of little tiny triangular faces. So that gives you a mathematical surface function that then you can do a lot with with uh, you know various different uh, software analysis programs. Yeah, we refer to the raw data, all those points you're talking about as the point cloud. Yes, this, correct. You know, cloud of points that cumulatively... Uh, creates the surface of of the part, but like you said, at that point, it's it's just a lot of points. There's no yeah. actual surface, and that that gets into what you mentioned about uh, these little triangles that are generated between all of the points, and and we often refer to that as as the the mesh um, that gets created around the, the point cloud. Um, so you mentioned CT scanning. Uh, what what's the difference between CT scanning and uh, the the structured light scanning, and why might one do one over the other? Great question, and we're really looking forward to getting started on this. This is something that's been on our radar screen for a long time, and we finally we had a machine all lined up to go, and COVID put a delay in it. So we we're we're, we're <laughs> supposed to be up and running with it right now, but the whole COVID thing. The the real simple story is it, it gave gave it a delay. Uh, CT has been out there a little while. So, so what it is, is instead of shining a light on your part and reading it with cameras, a uh, CT scanner takes an x-ray emitter and shoots x-rays through your part. And then how that x-ray that it's expecting to see in a detector screen behind the part, how that x-ray comes through some, apparently the very advanced software knows how to take what's coming out of that screen and calculate what your part is. So, and here's the basic difference. It's a great question. And these machines are incredibly complex, incredibly advanced, but to understand what's happening, it's fairly straightforward. So in a structured light scan, we're going to make tons of points. In a CT scan, instead of making points, you're going to make little tiny digital cubes. And the CT world has adopted and pretty well honed in on the term voxel, which I haven't heard that. It's new to me. It's really new to me. I've just learned ahead of time, you know, before the equipment comes, what's going to be here. But um, it had, I assume it came from a combination of, of a volume pixel. 
so okay. it, it makes little tiny cubes, you know, a couple microns, 10 microns, 30 microns, depending on the resolution that you specify and how you set up your set up your scan. So you basically create a solid. Now there's a lot of analysis actually is very interesting. A lot of analysis coming off of CT will get converted back into an STL file, which is the triangulated or the little triangular face element version of that point cloud, the final file that we send up from scanning. You can see a lot of times take these volume files and convert back to an STL, but there is a lot of volume, volume based analysis you can do with that also. So um, I shouldn't speak too extensively on this because it's quite new to me. And, uh, but in concept, that's a, that's a great starting point for the discussion. So the base, starting point is instead of making tons of points we make tons of cubes and and if i understand correctly um you can actually visualize interior features and components for example if you were to scan an entire assembly maybe you have a a, a medical device or mm -hmm. uh, some electronics package you could you could see you can visualize the components inside even though you can't see them you know, to the naked eye, they're, they're blocked because of the external housing or uh, shroud or, or whatever is covering these parts. With a CT scan, you can see the parts inside, right? You can see the parts inside, yes. And either the parts inside or the structure inside. Um, there, is, uh, there is some limitations to it. Uh, the fact that it's there doesn't mean you can get, it, uh, get a bit of a decent piece of steel or a cobalt-based metal. Um, you, the commonly available systems, as expensive as advanced as they are, um, can't get through them well. Um, okay. And, and if we were to take a piece of very low-density plastic with a high-density metal, it's difficult. It's it's in concept, it's really straightforward, but in practice, uh, which what has to happen is you've got to shoot through that part with a, an X-ray beam. And if you've got a piece of steel in there, you got to shoot through it with an X-ray beam strong enough, and you do that in your original part setup to get through that piece of steel. Well, that strong of an X-ray going through the plastic that's that's molded over it will just it'll look like air. It would look like nothing next to that steel. So there's some complexities to it. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm giving you the rough surface, and I'm really anxious to dive in in October, <laughs> learn all these intricacies, and bring our customers a real clear picture of what can and can't be done with it, best applications for it. But yes, you can see inside. Um, I know an application that I've heard come up is in the additive manufacturing world, you can make very complex structures where, you know, you know if we think of a lot of the lightweight honeycomb, um, yeah, but they use right. all over the race car world. I know they use it in other areas too, where you'll get uh, an aluminum honeycomb and they'll cap it with you know, carbon fiber, aluminum, or, or make a super lightweight panel. Well, you, with additive manufacturing, whether it's plastic or metal or whatever, you can make that all one piece. You can make that, you know, a, a ball with a honeycomb core or or a bicycle frame knuckle or, or corner component you can put a, a honeycomb core in the middle of it and the only way you could ever find out what's in there is with ct scanning 
And uh, I'm trying to think, what would be some other classic examples that are really easy to conceptualize how that would work? Well, it, it, it sounds like the, the density of the materials plays a big role in how yeah. well you're able to, to generate that data, right? There, maybe there's some range of, of densities yeah. that will show up really well. And if the range is too large, then maybe not all the parts show up as well. But you have to have different densities to see the different parts inside. Yes, um, okay. You have to do so. When we talk about the little voxels or the little tiny cubes, though, as I understand it, the system will also assign a density value to that. So, if you do have two different materials and two different densities, um, you you can see all you can see them separately in there because each cube has a, a density or a, or a value to it that identifies it as a different different piece of material so yeah it's got i'm always a little hesitant to say too much because i'm just kind of going by what i've gleaned as sure. we search the machines and look at different projects and whatnot. do you know if the, the resolution of ct scanning is comparable to that of structured light scanning it is um it's comparable and, and it has a little bit of an advantage uh, and again i'm gonna give you my can't wait to get my hands on it and really tell. We, we did have a couple parts come through in trial that um, showed that it really did match the machine specs. If anything, it was better than the machine specs of the particular machine we're getting. Um, and the the one item in, in structured light scanning that comes in and is always, a, I don't even want to use problem, but it's always something you have to consider, is any most parts you have to put a little tiny light spray on them and i think you've seen that you know we got to put a light like dusting right some powder. light dusting of the part and there's different ways to do it um, there's uh the aerospace world developed this titanium dioxide powder with the it's a magnaflux product it's a crack testing process and we spray it on with rubbing alcohol we can keep it quite thin but that five right now our thinnest variation of part prep adds five to seven microns so this is just my own hands-on feel to what I'm seeing from the limited um, CT projects that we've had trials done on. It looks like it's the systems have about the same resolution, which is just a few microns in, in the smaller volumes, but you take the spray out with the CT. So um, uh, okay. some might so argue that no, I've heard some CT No deviation to the nominal geometry at all. What's that? No deviation to the nominal geometry at all when you're using CT because you don't have yeah. that like, that powder yeah, that surface prep, on it. out of it. Yeah. So, okay, not sure yet if I if I'd call it right there. Uh, the claims are pretty strong, but I'm 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 being a little hesitant because I want to I want to see I want to see our machine in here and I want to see a bunch of projects come and go. So so our whole team sure. here really gets a clear understanding. I know. Uh, as an example, when we talk about our structured light scanning, if we go to our A2LA accreditation or scope of accreditation, that's telling you, for the most part, there's a little variability in there, how much uncertainty is in any measurement you take with that system. Well, there's a lot of projects without blowing our, our time out. I'll talk for way too long on this. Let me give you just jump to the end. There's a lot of projects that really fall below the published uncertainty of that process, according to our accreditation bureau. 
And I'm kind of anxious to learn that level of understanding of the CT projects. You know, we had one modest sized part, uh, plastic part scanned, but with a, actually, I think it was actually the machine we're buying. And uh, they, they sent the file back. We processed it. We, we took the raw data back into our Goldman Spec software package, compared it to um, our reference here at Dynamic is always an ultra high precision micrometer. So if you can get a nice square detail to get your micrometers on, then we can compare the, the, all these computed values that come out of these different software packages of either a C2 or a structured light scan. And we were the, we were within a micron, one micron. Wow, that's incredible. Two values measured. Where, and, uh, you know, who knows, you know, you know, with a micrometers, you've got a little, especially on a piece of plastic, you can certainly compress and, yeah, you know, you can have that much error in uh, methods of measurement, so our measurement technique. So anyway, I'm bouncing around on that. It's it's an exciting thing for me and for our team at Dynamic to have that machine coming in here and uh, looping back. It's a very long-winded answer to how what's the accuracy comparison. Our understanding is we would expect the CT to be a, l a good bit more accurate. Um, and uh, it's primarily, it's not the system, it's that part prep that you have to do with the structured light scanning. And uh, if you bounce around the shows and whatnot, the, the different manufacturers will try to tell you you don't need the spray. There are more and more parts you can do without spray, even, and we're starting to see some, and yet, we're finding out that a lot of times, even when you can get a decent scan off that part without the spray, you'll get a better scan with a spray. It's kind of a yeah, we insider the same thing. secret of that process. Because the manufacturers don't want you to know that you have to do that because that's not desirable when you're at the trade. Yep, just game. one more step. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Very good. Uh, tune in next time for the next episode of Being an Engineer. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>